Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it's Friday, which is not a usual recording day for us, but we have a special guest today that we're excited about. And, um, you know, honestly, recording on Monday is a little bit strange for us, so I don't think we're going to keep recording on Fridays, but I don't know. On Monday, sometimes I feel exhausted by the end of the day. I mean, I don't really have an excuse because it's not like I've been doing anything on Monday that's different than Saturday, but um, I think it's more like, you know, maybe I feel like some sort of collective exhaustion and, uh, and you know, it affects me in some way. But we have a, we have Tammy and Andy today, but we also have a guest. Uh, his name's Tommy Craggs. I've known Tommy for a very long time now. I don't know. It was like 10 years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's his voice that you hear right now. Tommy's a enterprise editor at Mother Jones, and he wrote an article um, that we are going to talk about in the second half of the show that I don't know. I mean, I read it and I felt like uh, Tammy, Andy, you tell me what you think. It's like, I just felt like it was like a real good, thorny, interesting answer in some ways. And in some ways, like, uh, you know, like somebody like, I think there are parts that we would agree with. I think there are parts that we would disagree with, but like the conversations that it elicited in my own head were interesting to me, at least. Did you guys feel that way? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Totally. And it's very, it's well done. It's very stylish and has good history too. So nice work, Tommy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the history parts were pretty compelling. Um, but okay, so we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But um, Tommy, you might also know Tommy outside of his that essay. Like he was the editor of Deadspin for a while, and he and I both started in sports. Andy is also a sports fan. <laughs> basketball fan and uh tammy is not a basketball fan but i you know i'm not gonna you know we it's it's fine tammy please just chime in you know and <laughs> i feel like such a misogynist right now you know like i'm, I'm hosting some bro show and there's like a you know bro bro sports talk radio show and gotta throw it you know anyway whatever i'm you know I'm, and they're Tammy, like, I'm you sorry. can stay. It's okay. Yeah, it's, make yourself comfortable. No, no, no. We love having women here. You know, <laughs> I just feel like such a shit. Like such a, like such a dick. Um. Anyway, how how are all of you doing? Good. Good. Yeah. Tommy has a very impressive bookcase. It's like made for Zoom. <laughs> yeah. These are these are just a. Uh, hundred dollars worth of ikea shelves really that's it. it looks it like uh you put, you, when you put them next to each other they, it looks it, it actually looks like a real you know like yeah. a real set of bookshelves um okay the nba tommy uh you and i met 10 years ago because we were both sports writers right um yeah. and uh you wrote and also edited a lot of pieces about you know this idea of sports and politics and you know i think that's been under your uh, direction, you know, did a lot of stuff that was interesting about Black Lives Matter, a lot of stuff that was interesting about Ferguson, a lot of stuff that was interesting about, you know, what it means to have black athletes that are being processed and written about by white sports writers, right? And that, um, and like what sort of power structures and what sort of, I don't know, what sort of narratives keep floating up, right? So one of the things that you talked about a long time ago, which I still remember with quite a bit of clarity was the way that like, Colin Cowherd talked about John Wall. Remember John Wall came into the league and yeah. John Wall was like doing the Dougie. Is that right? He yeah. was doing the Dougie. Yeah. 
which is quaint. Now. The way I just said doing the Dougie actually sounded racist to me when I said it. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, I just said doing the Dougie in a racist way. Um, but hard to. Yeah. So, like, I actually have, I, I wanted to talk to you about this, like, you know, just personally, but, you know, I think that on the show, it's a good starting topic. Like, what, what did you make of all of this? You know, like what happened in Orlando with the bobble around uh, George Floyd and 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 sort of the way in which like LeBron came to the forefront, and, you know, the way that that George Hill came to the forefront. Like, what did you just make of the whole thing? I mean, I, I think um, the bubble and, um, you know, sort of the, the player insurrection there, um, however brief it was, the wildcat strike was like one of the most sort of significant moments um in sports uh certainly of like the last year um and it like i i really think that like the specific circumstances um that gave rise to it should be thought through more i mean i i think a lot of this was the product of having all these players uh you know in this bubble uh together ownership is nowhere to be found uh like i think a lot of players developed a, like a sense of themselves as the like actual heart of the league. And I think, you know, I think for a lot of people there is like, well, what the fuck do owners do? What's the point of an owner? Uh, like, you know, we're playing these games. People are watching these games. Um, like what is the role of ownership? And, you know, when Kyrie said, do, what was, what was, what was it? He said exactly that, uh, you know, we could just start our own league. Um, and it was really interesting to see like kind of the, the like suddenness of the controversy around that. And, um, and like he had to row it back a little bit. Um, but that made people really anxious. And I think that like the controversy around that suggested like a lot of the anxiety surrounding this idea of players, like essentially doing the league off on their own without, you know, without owners um, and sort of setting the terms of, of the league. Um, and just that, that thought that the players could gather together and take a vote on whether or not to dump the season. It's like an incredible moment. And I, and I think we, we kind of like skipped right over it and things played out really quickly, but the fact that they held the fate of the season in their hands, um, is like, I feel like that should have been this incredibly radicalizing moment. And you saw, you know, you saw the, the wildcat strike, uh, you saw some of the ideas there spread beyond basketball really quickly. You had uh, what a walkout player, like football players at Mississippi, was it? Um, they walked out of practice, which is like unprecedented. And it was just sort of one of a handful of things that happened that week. Um, and I don't know. I just, I think for that, like that stretch, we had a glimpse of just how um, like powerful uh not just black athletes, but black cultural figures could be in sort of um, like creating this insurrection. Um, and then, you know, LeBron stepped in, Obama stepped in <laughs> and uh, sort of strangled it. But um, yeah, that's but, like that. I mean, that's something that we you get into a bit, I think, in your piece, right? At least implicitly in the piece that you wrote, which is that we're in this moment where it is very hard to disentangle like something like George Hill saying, I'm not going to play, right? and then his teammates supporting him, and then LeBron coming in and saying, I'm not going to play, you know? And it feels like, it feels wrong to sort of be like, well, one is 
one is like pure and one is not pure, right? And say that like, well, LeBron's just doing it because of Nike and Obama, you know? And you're just like, well, how do you know that? Like, we, no, nobody actually knows what's in LeBron's heart. You know, we can guess, you know, but, and then, um, and then Kyrie saying the stuff about the new league. By the way, did you see the video of Kyrie today? No. He was, he went, he's playing in the Boston Garden um, or whatever, TD Bank Water, TD Bank Garden. <laughs> and it's the first time he's back there and he was walking around the court with a burning sage. <laughs> Really, really? Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, it's kind of like Eastern religion. Because he used to really he used bad. to play there, and so I think he's like you know expunging some sort of negative energy, <laughs> negative yeah, energy yeah. from his bedtime. <laughs> Kyrie he was on he was on Instagram with like a lot of beads on the other day. Like I think he's gone. He's gone pretty like far east. I don't more like Native Americans. Yeah, 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 that's true. Like, of all the of all the accounts that you can't tell the difference between, like whether it's like a parody account or not, I think like Kyrie Irving is by far more <laughs> complex than any of those because, you know, like all the stuff that he says on Instagram Live, like there's a pretty good argument to be made that he's kidding about every most of the stuff that he's saying, right? Like so, this there's this video that went around where Ky, Tammy, I apologize for this. I'm gonna stop going on and on about this, but that's okay. There, it's interesting. There's this video where he was talking about with Kevin Durant, and he was talking about you know I I want eight I want eight post ups a, a game, which is like insane. Like they should never give him the ball in the post eight times, and uh, I think he was kidding. You know, but everyone was like freaking out, including me. You know, I tweeted something and then deleted it because I realized later that he was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there was uh, Jay Adande, the like uh, former ESPN sports writer, tweeted something like, tweeted something about like, does Steve Kerr know that they're or not Steve Kerr, uh, Steve Nash, who's the the coach of the Nets, does he know that they're like talking about uh, like game plans on Instagram Live or something like that? And it, it's like it would it. I think that Nets team is going to make like a certain kind of sports hack just totally insane this year. Uh, like, like, Ky of course, like, of course, Kyrie and Kevin Durant should, should be like having those kinds of conversations. They are better at their jobs. They have more experience at their jobs than Steve Nash has at coaching. Like, of course, that's that's where that conversation should be happening. Yeah. And the uh, team's success is like game. based on whether or not they get along or not. Um, yeah, I mean, I tell me, Annie, what do you think? Like, did you like we we t we had an episode about this? Um, Annie, has your thoughts changed about that that moment? Because I I know that both of us at the time were yeah. were inspired by what the players had done. Felt like it was in, felt like it was a good symbolic thing, but that it had almost immediately been funneled back into like what the league wanted to do and what, you know, and yeah. of course, how can like, of course it was always going to be that, you know, like these I players mean, are dealing with like these massive forces. So yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think the, what, what's new since we last talked about this is now they're doing the season and under basically completely insane circumstances. Um, and you know, they're after they want to start before Christmas and they're doing, they're just going to rush through the schedule and it's very bizarre because they just finished the last season from what I understand is there was a there was a meeting where the owners, you know, basically asked the players to do this. Uh, but, the, you know, the players could have done exactly what they did again, which is, you know, hold out, but they would have lost like half their salary or even more. Right. So there was I think I think I think that kind of uh, reminds us that, you know, the players are always making calculations that this isn't ne never this is never, never purely um, idealist consideration. Like like if they were going to do this 
to really hold out. Like, like when they held out in the bubble, they were not thinking we're going to lose our salary if we do this. Mm. They were not thinking there's going to be any financial consequences if we do this. Maybe like a one game fine, yeah. right? But when they're really presented with, you know, like the league is going to lose half its money and half its revenue, and that includes half of your salary, then the players at that point, they have a stake in keeping the league going. Um, even though, I don't know about you guys, I kind of find it really hard to follow sports right now in general, but no, my one sport is basketball, and I can't even like pretend like this is normal. Like, I guess when the I games begin, I can't figure it out them. either. Like, James Harden somehow gained 40 pounds <laughs> in 60 days, which is... <laughs> At the beginning of the pandemic, I lost like 12 pounds because I wasn't eating and I wasn't sleeping, which I think almost everyone was doing. And then the second that that switched off, I like gained it all back plus 10 pounds. So I gained like 20 pounds in like six weeks. I think that's what James Harden basically just did. It's hard to process because you're like, you're like, they just finished. I remember, I like, I have not actually, I've probably left my house outside of going to the grocery store like three times since the NBA finals. You know? And then somehow James Harden gained all this weight. Yeah, Andy, I'm with you. I can't quite follow it. The, the only thing that I'll say going into this year is that like Adam Silver did give a quote because he was asked about this recently and he, you know, and it was really just a question of like, is this going to continue? Like, you know, is the social justice thing going to continue? And I'd say social justice thing, like, and cause I think that's basically what it is, right? It's not really a platform. It's not really anything. It's just like, we're going to do social justice. That's the language that they use. We're going to try and stop, uh, what's the term systemic racism, right? Like it's, it's just sort of like a, it's almost like a bucket of stuff that can be almost anything in that bucket except for like player strikes. So what Adam Silver, the NBA, the commission, the NBA commissioner said is that I think some of the things that we're doing this summer are unique. For example, the social justice message on the jerseys, putting Black Lives Matter on the playing floor. Um, my belief is that those things are unique to this moment in time. I think there's also a recognition that even that if we did some of the things that all the time, there might even be a certain amount of fatigue around them and they wouldn't draw the same attention. Silver added that he hopes that the NBA commitment to social justice issues will be seen as a statement of the league's values rather than its politics. He also emphasized the importance of voting towards influencing legislative action and stressed that these topics are subject to constant collaboration between league officials and the players union. Tommy Craig's your thoughts. <laughs> Uh, when, when did he say that? Uh, I, I like at the that. end of the summer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it sucks, but I, I don't think you would expect anything different out of Adam Silver. I mean, that is, uh, I think he, I think, um, he probably, the, the thought of how David Stern would have handled something similar is, um, I don't know, kind of bracing. I don't think he would have been as tolerant as as silver was um and i don't think he would have been as eager to sort of co-opt the player's energy i think stern would have seen and i think in some ways correctly that 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 the play the players talking so forthrightly um about this stuff was like actually a threat to the league's authority which you know and as we saw it it actually was uh and i i think you know silver operates a little bit differently um, I actually want to go back to the, the wildcat strike yeah. because I remember we were texting the day, the day it happened. And I, like, I think it's easy to forget, but like, you know, I was watching NBA TV and flipping between that and ESPN and like Isaiah Thomas, like talking about WB Du Bois, Chris Weber, like giving this like 
like incredibly moving, like five minute speech. Um, yeah, like Kenny Smith Chris, walking off the set. Kenny Smith walking off the set. Like Chris, Chris Weber, like for a minute, I think he was about to yeah. go after this, this whole, like this whole, you know, go vote uh, kind of yeah. liberal platitude. Uh, like really incredible moment. Um, just like 12 hours of like really radical shit happening on ESPN on NBA TV. Um, and yeah, like we, it's, we've like kind of forgotten it. It was just this like weird sort of, um, I don't know, aberration in this weird year, but like, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it really did seem like possibilities had cracked open that had never yeah. <laughs> really existed. Yeah. And it's um, too early. I think, I don't know. I think it's too early to judge whether or not those have been fully sort of, uh, you know, blanketed or wallpapered over or, you know, rerouted into something less dangerous, right? Um, NBA players are young people, just like all other young people. Well, not just like all other young people, you know, they're much wealthier than, than most people, but they're also, you know, they're young. They're like the, it's Jalen Brown is like 25 years old or something like that. Right. Um, uh, and or 23, maybe. I mean, I, I, is he even, he's definitely not 25. I think he's younger than that. So you have these young people who, you know, are like young people discovering politics, young, discovering what they think about things and having these conversations. And, you know, like that, it's not like those people stop having those thoughts just because they're not taking a knee or, you know, canceling games or something like that, you know? And so it is interesting to see if, I don't think that we can like tell if anything has changed or anything. And I don't think that it'll be a big part of this season at least, but maybe in the next collective bargaining agreement or something like that. Yeah. I was going to yeah. ask what you guys think is going to happen to their bargaining power in the future. Cause there was just a good times article in the art section about the bargaining power of orchestras. They're taking huge concessions right now. And they're probably, those are probably going to extend into the future because management's basically using the COVID stuff as like, a pretext to shrink back and it just made me think about entertainment and sports in general and about like what we've lost and gained during this period so what does that look like for the players union uh tommy i think you're uniquely qualified to answer this question <laughs> i mean i i actually don't know the lay of the land but there there is like beyond the covid stuff there is this kind of looming burst of the the tv rights bubble uh mm, and that was yeah. always going to be used to sort of knuckle the players. Um, and so you you couple that with, um, you know, the revenue hit from COVID. Um, I don't know, it, like they're, I, I really have no way of knowing like what, what their leverage looks like. Um, the owners have the right, I think there's been talk that owners will rip up the CBA. They have the right to rip it up. And that, that was kind of like the thread that was used in this like December 22nd starting date meeting which is like if you mm. if, the, if the players don't go along we'll definitely rip up the cba and renegotiate but there's still they could still rip it up you know if they feel like they're gonna lose too much money so i think the power is kind of in their hands yeah still yeah there's and then the annie i'm very curious to know what you think about this because there's these also like there's these looming questions out there that i think people like us like to sort of brush aside because they're usually posed by people who are like charlatans or, you know, just assholes. But there is a question unlike about, <laughs> yeah, unlike us. <laughs> <laughs> Charlatan, maybe charlatan. 
Yeah, <laughs> one of these. If someone called me a charlatan, I'd be like, sure. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I seem to fit many of the characteristics, you know, of, of a charlatan. <laughs> <of a Charlotte. laughs> like, I don't really have a good counter to charlatan. Now, asshole, I don't know. Like, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm an asshole, but you know, charlatan, I think might fit. But, uh, <laughs> um, but okay, other charlatans. They make this argument yeah. essentially that all this player empowerment, which has, you know, the most effect, the most visible way in which it shows itself is through players just switching teams all the time. Right. Um, yeah. Having short term contracts that the least conversation is not about teams. It's just about transactions and that for a while, because this interface very well with Twitter, it drove a lot of interest to the league. But the fundamental truth of it is that, like, I don't really give a shit what players are and what teams outside of like four players. Right. And um, people seem to be becoming a little bit exhausted with that. Ratings are going, like, ratings are down. There's no way to really slice yeah, that. Yeah. Like, every, by every measure compared to every other sport, NBA ratings are down. Um, oh, really? The money that went into the league was mostly, as Tommy said, from these two massive TV deals that they did, which bumped up the, uh, the salary cap and the amount of money that players could make. But those are all going to come back down, obviously. And so the question really is when, if the league and the owners go to the players and be like, this league is not healthy right now. You know, like we can't keep doing this. Like we can't have you guys switch teams all the time. But if, if you want that as your league, we're going to give you a lower share of the basketball yeah. uh, generate basketball, what, BRI, whatever that basketball yeah, yeah. related income. Related or like income yeah. or something. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think, Andy? Like, do you think that, that that's like the future of it that, they're just going to basically be like, this is reality. These are the ratings and you guys have to yield. And there's, I don't know, for me, like when I think about it, I don't really know what the players say at that point, right? Because ratings are ratings. It's a type of data point that, you know, it maybe shouldn't be, but it's the type of thing that just ends up being like, well, just, you just keep pointing to the fucking, when you're having an argument, you just keep pointing the number, you know? And wait, wait, wait. So, so there's two things. There's the ratings thing, which I have thoughts on, but you're saying that's going to be leverage for what you think the players really wanted to switch teams all the time that's their desire yeah and i think that the owners will just be like the way that the basketball is operating right now is not healthy for the league and um i'm not sh i'm not sure they actually do want to switch teams because i well okay so the ratings thing i actually think is interesting we actually talked about this once where you know like ethan strauss makes a big deal about you know ratings are down but if you actually pull he's not out, a, he's from, not the charlatan I was talking about. I only yeah. say because he lives down he lives down the street from me. He lives like okay. yeah, Tommy. Tommy, he's like equidistant between me and Tommy. Um, um, if if you pull out the ratings from this decade, which is what the comparisons always are, and do the twenty year rating, twenty year view, we're basically where 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 the NBA was in like two thousand eight, two thousand seven, which was not like a great point in the NBA history. But if you make the argument that this stuff happens in cycles and waves, I think it's plausible that. It's not some like mm. massive disaster. It's just it's not the Warriors, you know, LeBron years, which were, you know, the most popular ones since Shaq and the Bulls. You, you sound um, like a Bitcoin maximalist. <laughs> every, every, every time Bitcoin, every time Bitcoin would go from like nine thousand to four thousand dollars, and I'd be like, I just lost like so much money, and then I would just start tweeting my doom. Like six hundred yeah. people would respond and be like, "Zoom out on the chart, motherfucker!" You know, yeah. at some point, this thing was worth twelve cents. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not very, I'm not bullish on the league. I just think it's maybe a little overstated. You think it's I overstated? Think, well, okay. the other thing though is, um, 
Wait, so I don't, I don't know if the players really want to actually move teams. If you put yourself in their shoes, they actually, I think, would like to stay with one team more often. I mean, they would like to live in L.A. and New York, and that's, you know, probably true. I think the short-term thing is, like, it's, like, uh, for the superstars, they really want to go to big markets. And, and there was, there's, like, talk that, like, the owners actually, the owners were the ones who wanted shorter contracts. Yeah, they did. Because the owners would get stuck with, like, eight-year contracts for players they wanted to get rid of, and then the players kind of reaction to that was like, well, then if I'm not going to get paid, I'm not going to get a, have a career Then I'm going to ask to be traded or whatever. I, I think that's, I mean, I don't know what the cause and effect of all that is, but I think that's, I don't know if that's just what the players, like the players are just want to leave and the owners are like being forced to let them. I think that's just, well, the, you know, the superstars, isn't it? The, the, the max, the max contract regime also really incentivized yeah. like going where you could win a, a title, like find deriving your value in other ways if you couldn't get it in salary you would get it championship championships endorsements whatever um, yeah uh tommy you you wrote a piece recently which you know i was very excited to see for many reasons the first is that you know you write infrequently i'm not saying that as like a insult but you know i don't know what did you write like once a year maybe once every few years i don't know when 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 the mood strikes when this is you're like a quaker you know like when, when, <laughs> <laughs> when the spirit moves me but <laughs> you're like too busy editing <laughs> you're like a quaker who like does not have a particularly strong relationship with god you're like well, how, how how often does the spirit move you well once every four years i feel the hand of god on my uh, you know <laughs> and I'm, oh I'm, I'm moved to 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 speak um, it's called What's the Matter with Cultural Politics? It was uh, published in Mother Jones, where you work as an editor. And uh, I don't know, Tommy, I thought this was a great piece that you wrote. And I, like I said at the start, I think it was really sort of provocative. I want to set it up a little bit because um, I, I don't know. I don't want to put you through the uh, ordeal of having to explain the article that you wrote. But you start with this sort of anecdote about Andrew Yang, right? Um, and you say, uh, you talk about how Andrew Yang processed a lot of what had happened in the election and by what happened in the election, meaning, I don't know, Democrats being kind of disappointed that they lost Congress seats and that the Senate, you know, had to go to these Georgia runoffs and that the election was not the landslide that they thought it was going to be. Um, so what Andrew Yang said is that in their minds, Andrew Yang said on CNN two days after the election, referring to the working class people he'd met on the trail during his bid for the Democratic nomination, Quote, the Democratic Party, unfortunately, has taken on the role of the coastal urban elites who are more concerned about policing various cultural issues than improving their way of life that has been declining for years. Um, in their minds, Andrew Yang said, oh, wait, no, no, I just read that. OK, so like that, that's sort of like the setup there, right? Like, what do we make of this argument that is coming from all sorts of people on the left, including Andrew Yang? You, you mentioned Claire McCaskill, like sort of these big I think we can just say Andrew Yang is one of these right now, like sort of these big people who go on television and say things right about the Democratic Party and the future of it. Why are they processing so much of it about like cancel culture and wokeness and the culture war? Um, anyway, Tommy, what do you think? Like, why, why are they well, why are they doing that? So I, I guess one of one of the the, the piece grew out of just um, sort of the experience of having MSNBC on TV all day long for like two weeks straight and just hearing <laughs> hearing people come back to versions of this argument over and over and over. Uh, and um, I guess one of the things I wanted to do with the piece was sort of trace um, the history of this this kind of argument, um, which 
which is not new, which happens. Uh, you hear versions of this, um, you know, every four years, some, you know, maybe every two years after any kind of election. And it happens after wins. It happens after losses. It, it, no matter the context, you hear people saying the Democrats need to fo- focus on bread and butter issues uh, and not, you know, identity, culture, that sort of thing. Um, and so where what I'm arguing in the piece is that you can trace this um, this kind of binary back to like the, the post 60s turn in our politics. Um, and that was, you know, kind of a lot of things were happening, you know, in the 70s. You have this the dawn of like a, a new kind of authoritarian populism. You have stagnation. You have the rise of this like Thatcherite. There is no alternative. Um, and that's where you really start to see uh, the rise of these kinds of, um, you know, I, I call it in the in the piece um, culture contra arguments. Um, it's interesting. You can find like references to Reagan Democrats going back even to the 70s before he's president. Um, you can see some like glimmer of this even in the like late 60s. Pete Hamill wrote a piece about um the revolt of the lower white middle class. Uh, it was actually like a very artful handling of, of sort of the, the complicated dynamics here. And he, um, and he doesn't run away from, um, you know, the, the, the racism in the story. Uh, but yeah, that, that you go back to the seventies and you have this idea, um, you have this idea where that takes hold across, you know, from right to left, this idea that, nothing is really possible that we're all just in this shit fight over this like shrinking pile of stuff. Um, and that's, I think that's what's behind this kind of argument. It's coming out of this, this like long age of scarcity that we're still living in. Yeah. I mean, it was as recent as the 2016 midterms, I mean, 2014 midterms where Remember, like the blue wave, there was arguments being made that the reason why the blue wave happened was because they didn't, they weren't woke, you know, the, 2018, 20, 2018, what year is it? 2018 midterms. Yeah, I thought it was, like, yeah. I thought it was two, yeah. 2016, but like, yeah, 2018 midterms, you, you hear this argument coming out being like, well, the reason they won is because uh, they ran a bunch of centrist white men, right, who talked about, uh, you know, about, about i don't know policy or whatever not even policy that they were they were just not they were just not identifiably woke right which yeah. has a ton of well, and women too i mean abigail spamberger was like in the 2018 class right and and she was one of the more like she was one of the more notable uh woke bashers of the last last month or so um like talking about like the you know democrats are, are doomed if they keep talking about defund the police even though what Democrats are talking about. Well, that's about what I always want to know. Like, who are the, yeah. like, because, like, people are, I know who the anti-woke Democrats are, right? Who, like, who are they talking about when they say, like, the woke Democrats? You know, like, like this argument with Matt Iglesias. Every time Matt Iglesias tweets about it, I always ask him, can you name the people you were talking about? And he never, <laughs> he doesn't respond to me, but he did once. And then he, but, um, but you know, I, I don't ask very nicely, so I don't really blame him. But, like, you know, like, like who, who are, who, like, who, when, when these people are formulating their arguments, Tommy, like who, who are they actually talking? Are they just talking about AOC, for example? Are they just talking about Elizabeth Warren? Because I know that there's, remember like when 
the big thing in Bernie world was to say that like the problem with Elizabeth Warren was that she had too many woke people on her staff. Right. And that uh, she, she was like talking about black trans lives mattering and stuff like that. And people like, oh, you can see everybody turning off of Elizabeth Warren. It's like, look, I don't know. You know, like it seems like that's placing a lot of importance on, you know, one statement also. And maybe we should care about black trans lives, too. Um, anyway, like who, who do you think they're talking about when they when Yeah, they I mean, it's it's AOC, Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. I mean, you know, uh, all of whom have certain things in common. Right. Um, I mean, like it, 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 you know, even if they're not talking about this stuff, even if they aren't using this language explicitly, like, uh, you know, they become sort of the vessel for for the woke bashing, I think. Um, and yeah. Andy, do you, do you think it is, well, who do you think it is? Do you think it's, do you think it's AOC and do you think it's AOC and Tlaib and, and, um, and I think Ilhan my understanding is like from McCaskill for sure. I don't know who Andrew Yang is criticizing because I didn't think he was necessarily anti-squad, although he's himself is not very squad like, um, one, I mean, one thing I was thinking was <laughs> Andrew Yang Tommy is, and the squad. <laughs> Definitely not that. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, Tommy, would you, I, I think, you know, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but one thing I guess I would ask in response is, is there a version of a critique of woke politics that you're okay with? Like, is there, is there, or, or, or slash, is there a version of woke politics that you dislike? Because it sort of seems like you're saying at some point, like, like, you know, race and identity and gender stuff is necessarily materialist. And I think most of us on this podcast, we talk about that all the time. But do you think there is a version of like race, gender, identity stuff that is anti-materialist? That is, right? I mean, I I think, you know, and I think this is where things, you know, where the argument becomes a little bit of a dance, but like you have the like co-opted version of, of woke politics that like, I think like, we've all had the experience of, of doing some sort of like HR onboarding thing and, and being slightly red pilled by yeah. like, the, 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 like the wokeness of the HR software yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I think, I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of a caricature, but I think like one of the things that happens a lot, uh, especially with left critiques of wokeness is that they, they sort of mistake the co-opted version for mm. like, for, for something, for the real thing uh, mm. and sort of inveigh against, uh, that kind of like liberal uh, HR-ish bullshit. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know if this is, if, if that's what you have in mind, Andy, but I think like, obviously that is, um, you know, that is substance free, that is like right. totally divorced from any kind of like material considerations. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think like, just from like a, a like a political organizing standpoint, um, I don't, I, I don't have any sense of like, I couldn't name names here, but I think, um, you know, I think there is a, a version of this that is like, um, you know, of, of woke politics that, um, isn't, isn't, you know, that doesn't, um, <laughs> it's basically what we talk here. about on the show all the time. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but there has to be like, that has to be an embrace at some point. Um, yeah. like other, otherwise it's just, it's not, it's not political or it's yeah. it's not political organizing uh, right, and you have right. to give people you have to open some door somewhere um yeah, right because because i, I kind of think like you know you mentioned thomas frank and 
I kind of think he is on a different side than like Claire McCaskill, obviously, when they talk about the culture issues. Uh, let me read that, that part, Andy, just to right? set it up, and yeah. then I'll let you continue. But um, this is from Tommy's piece. Pundits and political figures across the political spectrum, uh, from reactionary liberals like Claire McCaskill to right-handed class warriors like Michael Lynn to lefty polemicists like Thomas Frank, come together in a shared vision of white workers as lumps of inchoate class feeling who but for the corporate propaganda of the right or all that identity crap on the left would eagerly transmute their economic position into legible, legible populist voting patterns. It's very nice writing, Tommy. The narrative leaves no room for the possibility that white working class voters, exploited though they might be, might also derive benefits material and otherwise from the subordination of other people. All right, like, so that's, that's the mention of Thomas Frank. So go ahead. No, I was just thinking like, just kind of going through it like i agree like you know when when basically a conservative democrat makes this argument we know that it's kind of a bad faith argument that they are i think it's a bad faith argument because we just know that conservative democrats themselves are not that interested in improving the lives of the people they claim to be speaking for um but i do think that uh, you know i think you know a lefty i assume i don't i assume thomas rank is kind of would be like pro bernie pro you know medicare for all and all those things his they would be i think his target would be sort of the 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 bad hr version that we were just talking about i think you know and um you know so so i think overall your criticism you know i I agree with it but i think even beyond that we could kind of like disaggregate the sort of yeah woke and all that i think that's i i think that's well taken i think also though the that the the thing like I think the similarities there and, and sort yeah. of the continuities between the Tom Franks and the Claire McCaskills are um, sort of discomforting and also illuminating. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. like in there, in the end, they both have in mind um, a certain kind of white voter with a certain set of, of sort of default assumptions. Yeah. Um, and the fact that you have somebody on the left, somebody as smart as Tom Frank sounding like, somebody as as useless as claire mccaskill <laughs> is like like should, i think should give people pause and yeah. like where where like you know the, the chapel guys start sounding like claire mccaskill like what yeah. <laughs> should sort of bring you up up short a little bit like what's what's going on there and what's uniting them um yeah, yeah. although one thing i think about a lot is like you know we are diverse we have diverse friends but if I were running a national campaign, I would probably just go for the white voter. Like that's how you, that's how, that's how you win in the United States, right? You just get white voters and you win. So I don't know. It's it's uh, that's why I don't run national campaigns. Yeah, but the question is like is like if like I don't know. Like so, for ex- I think that there's a version of the of the sort of uh, postmortem on Elizabeth Warren, for example, that would say that if she and I I saw this right, so I'm not making it up in my head. Like it's not a theory. It's like. Or with Kamala, remember, like it happened with Kamala too, and I think that one is much more rooted in her being, uh, you know, her being a black woman. That they're just like, oh, any time that they said anything that sounded kind of Twitter woke, you know, like people would just be like, that's it for them, you know. There go all the white <laughs> voters, you know. There go all the right white rural voters. It's like you're tweeting this shit from fucking uh, from like Cobble Hill, you know, Brooklyn. 
Um, you you have you've never lived you 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 grew up in New York City like you've never been to a rural area except like fucking Kingston, New York or some shit like that you know or like or like what's that town up there Hudson that sells all the mid century modern furniture Hudson where all the writers <laughs> yeah. I've been there it's a nice town you know I would not I, mean, I wouldn't want to live there but like it's not bad you know but like that that's your idea of like fucking <laughs> that's your idea of like rural of of the rural but like what the fuck do you know you know like yeah. and it's it 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 does sort of feel insulting and some way to me right which is that andy i agree with you i think it's important to appeal to white voters right but like <laughs> the idea to reduce it all down to like they're these quivering ma- you know they're these quivering terrified people where the second you say the word trans they're like that's it you know <laughs> i was gonna vote for you elizabeth <laughs> warren but i'm now voting for donald trump right. like that's the part that seems like crazy to me and that that's where it becomes sort of we talked about this a little bit last week with sarah leonard as well right today like tammy if you remember this conversation it's just like it does dehumanize like the white working class in this sort of way. I think Tommy is one of the good sort of arguments that you put forward here, which is that like you could also, and this is something that I always think about and you know, something that we talk about on the podcast all the time with like, you know, Asian and Latino voters, which is like, it does help to just think maybe they're people who are voting in their best interests, you know, and trying to yeah. figure out like why they're doing that. that um, Tammy, what do you think? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, Tommy, if you wanted to say a little bit about those other voters, the non-white working class voters, and kind of how this MSNBC crowd envisions their arguments applying to them. Because I feel like in the last election, you know, in the hillbilly elegy, hillbilly, what is it? Hillbilly elegy? Hillbilly elegy stage of the Trump era, it was more obsessing over just the whites. And I think this time there was also a lot of anxiety over other sorts of voters, whether it's working class or middle class, like black and brown voters who were turning towards Trump. Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess not to like um, take a detour, but I, I guess one thing that I, I, I did want to talk about, and I think this is this is sort of relevant to um, a lot of your work, Tammy, but um, that one of one of the um, you know, one of the, I guess like the origin of the piece, or at least, you know, I've had, like, I remember in 2004 when What's the Matter with Kansas came out, I was, um, you know, I, th- I thought Thomas Frank had it all figured out. I thought this was like the skeleton mm-hmm. key to politics. And then the last, you know, however many years I've, I have like definitely moved away from that, um, that kind of vision. And I think a lot of it had to do with, with, um, my own experience in newsrooms that are organizing, whether like formally organizing in, in a union or um, organizing around some particular grievance. Yeah. Um, and especially, you know, in the last last five years, um, watching people organize, you know, almost in a literal sense through identity channels through like the slack channel for non-white people the slack channel for women i mean how many of the media the media organizing drives happened because the the women's slack channel uh had a conversation about pay inequities that led to a salary reveal that led to 80 percent of the people in there like fully radicalized Mm -hmm. and ready to tear shit down um like it happened at two different newsrooms that i've worked in uh you know i've worked at a place that um you know, where uh, the like the POC Slack channel um, wrote a letter and it 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 um, it was, you know, it was a it was a complaint about just about the newsroom and about uh, the, the working environment. Uh, but it, this was these were non-white people sort of 
um, uh, arriving at a sense of themselves being sort of fucked uh, through uh, through identity and and totally. arriving yeah. at a sense of themselves as workers getting fucked over uh, via via identity um, and like just watching that happen uh, like kind of opened my eyes to the to the way that, that like this you know this this unity this unity that I'm talking about between like cultural and economic stuff um, like you know people I know people I work with like that's how they that's how they uh, sort of work through their own issues in mm-hmm. a workplace um, and so I, I think they're like larger they're larger like um, you know political issues that that points to and and Tam- Tammy I guess I'd be curious what what you make of that and if that's something you've seen um, because I think like you know, the workplace organizing, I think there's this conceit that um, talking about race, talking about identity or whatever only deepens like sectarian, you know, the sectarian divisions yeah. among workers. But when you think about workplace organizing, you're talking about organizing differently situated workers already, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people with doing different tasks in different corners of a shop or whatever. Um, why is it that race or identity like, why does that have to be the most salient difference? Um, and, I, you know, I, I think the larger sort of um, political implications of that is that, you know, the work is to find, you know, common sources of oppression, common means of redress. And uh, like just just watching people like find themselves in these newsrooms as workers being fucked over through identity. Like it it, it made me see like there are possibilities of like solidarity developing Mm -hmm. even though they come at it through you know identity and i I guess tammy i I was curious like what you like i don't know what you make of that yeah i think that's true and i think i've seen that too not only in white collar organizing but in blue collar organizing too because you i guess you just never know what the issue is that's going to set people off and what they're going to gather around and you know the special thing i think about workplace organizing or housing organizing is is which is different from electoral organizing is that you're forced to organize with this set group that just has wildly different views and experiences from you, right? So it's possible that in a hospital campaign, you could have black nurses coming together and some of them are Republicans and some of them are Dems and they don't even really talk about yeah, that. Like the teachers unions were salient, very right? much like that. Like teachers union, teachers unions in Arizona. Teachers, yeah, totally. Like in, 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 in yeah. Oklahoma and West Virginia. It's like, it's not like all those teachers are like fucking right. Bernie for us, you know? Totally. <laughs> But I wonder if, I mean, I think I, the question I've struggled with is around, around Frank's argument is whether that still applies in electoral spaces in a way, because the nature of kind of community or worker organizing is so different from electoral organizing. I mean, theoretically and ideally, we would have local campaigns that kind of expand out and essentially just become electoral campaigns. And I think that's the beauty of like, we had Nikhil Saval on here and like, you know, people on that part of the left wing of the Dems, like, that's why that's inspiring, because it feels like a community campaign, right? But I don't know, I mean, in a in a presidential election, I just don't know, I, it just becomes much murkier to me. Yeah. And, and I think like, part, part of uh, what I talk about in the piece is that, you know, I mean, this is the old, you know, Stuart Hall line. Um, and this isn't like his essay, the great moving right show is like a thing I, I've read over and over in the last like four years uh but he he sort of talked about absent like some more assertive intervention by the state uh 
yeah. know, these politics are, are going to continue to be scrambled. And so I think, I think, yeah, in terms of like, uh, like a president, like, like political organizing, I think without, um, you know, something political to organize around, uh, the thing that, you know, the things totally. that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's difficult because like, I think that we can, you know, and this is, a, I, I find myself guilty of this all the time. Um, I was actually just like I'm going through the edits of my book right now and I read this section that I wrote and it, you know, totally guilty of this, so I changed it, but it's like you you there's a difference between taking what the what exists in like these workplaces and also in like, you know, places where voters are and meeting them where they are in terms of thinking about these things, right? Like Tommy, you were saying, like is it like if we were going to concoct the perfect world for like somebody with left politics, would we say, oh, it starts in the POC room at Vice, you know, You're like, no, of course not. You know, like that's not the ideal <laughs> setting. But that's I don't know. I was in the POC room at Vice, you know, at, in the Slack room. <laughs> great conversations you know like amazing <laughs> sharing of videos <laughs> like, and then when stuff really got bad you know because we were under like a six-month cloud of me too right uh where like they're like yeah. we're gonna um we did not trust our bosses uh people were trying to organize like you know the correspondents were trying to organize the writers were trying to organize um the writers i think did organize while i was there but the tv show was harder just because we had to like basically cordon everybody off where like the correspondents would have to join one union at, anyway whatever like all of that did happen in the slack rooms right like and then we figured out that they were monitoring the slack rooms which probably should have figured that say. out earlier and then <laughs> and then terrible but, to use slack yeah but it it does wow. it does happen there i don't know it's like i remember i had this conversation with this like uh with somebody and they're like sort of saying like uh they're getting mad at everybody. Like it, this was a, this is like an old this is like old Marxist, you know. And he was like, he was just like, I all these people are now just doing the black and white unite shit, you know. And I was like, but you know that's that's what existed, you know. Like that's that's like the reason why they're talking about it is because that's that's how the workers were processing it, you know. They're processing through like black and white unite. So you even saw it at like the. Um, at that protest I went to, Tammy, at the uh, Oakland Docks, right? Tommy, did you go to that one? Yeah, I wasn't there. Okay. Uh, and the, the one where Angela Davis. Yeah, Angela spoke. Davis. Are, but it's the yeah. same thing. You know, like those old guys, those old stevedores are still saying, like, that's, that's how they process the world. And so, like, what is the function of saying, like, oh, you shouldn't process it this way? Like, how, you know, like, what's, what's going to happen? They're like, well, we've been processing it this way for, like, 50 years, you know? I'm, like, 62 years old. And I want to retire. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not gonna I'm not going to not think about it this way, but it does seem like, uh, you know, that's sort of the, that's sort of the reality of things, right? Like you have to sort of indulge in that a little bit, but at the same time, I don't know. I mean, um, I think one of the things Tommy that we talked about on the show quite a bit, it was that like, you know, is there any actual, like, is there a way to have it not just fully be, and this is a very abstract idea, but like, is there a way for it to not just become you know, the Biden is, has the most diverse cabinet of, you know, people who do drone strikes um, <laughs> because it's and, and, you know, what we were talking about, the NBA is the exact same thing, right? Like, is it useful to say, like, Nike should not be making social justice ads, you know, 
what happened to Colin Kaepernick? Colin Kaepernick is just like, Colin Kaepernick doesn't say anything anymore. You know, he just says like Nike ads. The only political statement that he put out outside of a, hey, let's go fight is when he got mad about like Nike putting out a shoe with like a weird flag on it, right? Like it's like, um, like if if Colin, if, you know, I look, I I think what Colin Kaepernick, this is not to bash Colin Kaepernick. I think that Colin Kaepernick is a heroic figure and that, you know, what he did was incredibly brave given, you know, the resistance towards it. And I think that inspired millions of people. But, you know, Colin Kaepernick, since signing with Nike, you can make the argument that, like, he's sort of disappeared, right? And that perhaps that's intentional. You make a Nike ad where there's no mention of the police, right? <laughs> like, basically, his Nike ad is just like, hey, if you don't have any legs, you can still become, like, a wrestler. Or if you grew up in Compton, you can still become Serena Williams. It's just like, look, I, I didn't doubt any of these things beforehand because, because Serena Williams exists, you know? I'm pretty sure that you can be a good um, um, Like, I don't know. Like, you know, like, it, it seems like there is some... And I think this is what Andy was asking. So this is my long-winded way of just repeating what Andy said. It does seem like there's some value in interrogating that line, you know, and to ask those questions. And I think that... One of the things that I thought about while reading your piece, which I think I agreed with Andy about, which is just like sort of like, are you making an implied argument or making an implicit argument here that we should just stop trying to interrogate that line, that we should stop calling out stuff as like woke, dumb stuff that is turning? Or are you just saying like this one practice of of saying that white voters are turning away from the party because of this stuff is bad? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not an argument in favor of of like like the fake wokeness. Though I I don't think I don't I I guess I have become a little more forgiving of of woke brands like over the last few years. I don't I don't I don't think they're like you know bringing about any great social change. But I uh, but as like um, you know an index of where things are. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's um, just generally. I I I have like resisted any kind of like of the old anti-consumerist leftism in me, which I think like actually informs a lot of specifically Tom Frank's um, yeah. uh, arguments against cultural politics. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think they're like they're they're you know some of those ads are just are terrible and sort of. Um, offensive in you know um sort of i don't know treating us kind of like morons but i don't i don't find i don't find them like actively undermining oh sure but like you know but like what like just i I guess just to very you know ask much more clear than i did you know like are you like do you think that there is I, i guess i think that some people might argue and i might actually argue this although i'm not really sure and if i if i was sure i would just argue it but you know if you say like let's let's like sort of let some of this go you know like let's not get so mad about this right um like uh let's not let's not like sit there and listen to cory bush or jamal bowman speak with like fucking hair on end waiting for them to say something you know and then just bash them and you know because this is what parts of the left do you know like dudes with like rick and morty avatars and um you know, who just talk about like whether Red Scare is fascist all day. Like that's what they do. You know, they take these black left uh, or, or, or Latino left um, politicians, and they just basically the second they breathe anything about race, they're like they're a dumb identitarians. You know, 
like that yeah. that i think we can all agree that that's fucking stupid and awful those people you know like you know don't represent anyone except like a small cohort of like you know people yeah. with borderline personality disorder or something like that not to mention you know not to and i think i actually have bpd so you know i, I feel in solidarity <laughs> with them but the uh the i i well i i guess i don't actually think they they represent a small cohort like maybe maybe on the left but i think like that's that's sort of what I wanted to do by like drawing drawing a connection between Tom Frank and Claire McCaskill. Mm. This is actually mm. like, this is actually sort of a uh, like uh, one of the rare like transpartisan consensus issues, right? Uh, mm. That like, I mean, I think this is a longstanding uh, transpartisan issue in American politics, which is like black people don't be uppity, right? That's like that's what it amounts to, right? Yeah. Uh, like don't don't make don't make white people, either me or my imagined white person, the, my imagined white default, uncomfortable in any way. Yeah, that's, anyway, that's the sorry. one you can always see with the defund the police where it's just like, they're like, uh, you know, like there are white voters who are very uncomfortable with the idea of defund the police. You're like, you're talking about yourself. You, uh, you know, yeah. you are a white voter and you're uncomfortable <laughs> with it. Just say that you're uncomfortable with it. And they're like, no, 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 no. I'm totally cool with it, you know, but I'm just worried about the like, you know, like the, the, the optics of it. It's like, no, you're just you know, it, it's you that's uncomfortable by it, you know? So, uh, and you, of course, are using yourself as like barometer for everything else. But like, I, I guess that, that, you know, if we don't interrogate it, right? Uh, or how, is there a way to interrogate those sorts of divisions between like things like the Biden diversity cap, you know, cabinet of, of uh, you know, whatever, like Republican finance people and, and, and imperialists, right? Like being diverse, <laughs> like, and, or like Nike doing these commercials and not sort of falling into this trap. That's my question. Yeah. Like, is there a I mean, good I, way to do this? I think that's that's happening. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't I don't feel like uh, people are are like tiptoeing around the Biden shit. I mean, it, it seems like from at least from where I sit, like the left is like pretty unified in, in like like calling this bullshit. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think something I read in your piece, too, which I think is useful even in, you know, more lefty people like us talking to liberal friends is that, you know, I read in your argument um, a, basically a call to read deeper into things that like look woke on the surface or whatever, or are easily dismissible as such. So like defund the police is not like a woke slogan that is the same as some HR like race and you know, gender equality bullshit. It's actually like an economic program. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about like, you know, if people are talking about like trans rights, that's not something to be dismissed as like some like issue talking point, like these are human beings. And I think like, I don't know, that's obvious, but I think also it's really worth talking about and spelling out for people because I think like, I, I recall this conversation I had with um, a journalist in Korea and he is an American journalist and was like, I think like the trans stuff happened too early. Like that was his like assessment of like why Trump. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, first of all, that's just like bizarre and stupid, but also it's the like so it's such early. a facile and idiotic like oh, like God. assessment of like yeah, it's just, you know, so I I was actually kind of shocked and I think I did a bad job of like yelling. <laughs> but I think like I, I think your essay is, is getting to a good point, like in terms of like giving us working material to to use. And and I think like part of the, the failure, um, part of the failure, you know, liberals and left alike is um, a failure to draw 
um, draw these connections between, you know, opp- oppression, you know, in as it appears in different forms and, and mm-hmm. uh, the inability to see what I think are like sort of obvious analogies, uh, you know, between oppression of trans people and oppression of gay people and oppression of black people and and the and but also importantly and, and crucially um, the op- oppression in the in the workplace um, and that these things are happening at the same time that that this is you know this is the thing to fight and it it ex- like that kind of oppression expresses itself in different ways um, you know among um, sorry did did. Did I drop out? Here? No, no, no. You're fine. You're just okay. frozen on Zoom periodically. Okay. But Sorry, you're yeah. coming through Zencaster. <laughs> um, yeah, that that this this oppression manifests itself in ways that are economic and cultural and moral and social, um, and you know the inability, you know, as the left to to find the common thread there is like a failure of the the moral imagination. And so that's that's sort of why I ended the piece with with Carol Fife and and let let me read that. I have that right here so that you don't have to read from your own piece, but like, um, Carol Fife (laughs) is somebody that we are all interested in. Tammy wrote about her, right? Tammy, who is Carol Fife? Why don't you introduce who Carol Fife is? Because you wrote a great piece for the New York review of books, I believe about her and her candidacy. Sure. Yeah. So, um, Carol is a longtime community organizer and comes out of kind of like a black nationalist, um, organizing tradition and, um, is in Oakland and has been organizing with a California-based group called ACE, which does basically like economic justice and racial justice community organizing in localities. And um, she was one of the people to spearhead the Moms for Housing campaign last year, which occupied a house in Oakland and was kind of reminiscent of strategies used like in the 70s, but also like after um, the mortgage crisis, um, the foreclosure crisis. And um to occupy a house that basically was owned by like a flip shop. Um, And I think Moms for Housing just really, like to Tommy's point just now, really ignited people's moral imagination around the country in terms of like the right to housing, the human right to housing, and the ways in which, you know, housing should not be commodified and used against, especially black people in in neighborhoods that have been there for decades. And what was the incident that sort of sparked everyone's imagination? Because, you know- Yeah, sorry. So when they occupied this house, that again was empty. Um, they were evicted in like a incredibly brutal and just like ostentatious way, like with tanks. And it was just actually kind of bizarre and actually quite stupid. Um, and stupid. So, of the, yeah. Stupid of, of the police. Yeah. And, of yeah, the police. Yeah. yeah of Almighty County yeah. and the Oakland PD kind of tried to opt out of it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think just the visual of it got a lot of people really hot and, um, yeah, and now she she ran for Oakland City Council yeah, and won District Three and ran. She won yeah. a close race. So um, t- Tommy wrote, you know, you end your piece with talking about Carol Fife and talking about look, like there are people, and this is what I always I, I, the thing. One of the other things I appreciate about your piece, Tommy, is that like I think that some of the conversation around this stuff really does erase the fact that like AOC exists, which is fucking crazy to me. She's like the most <laughs> famous person in America, you know, <laughs> it, like, like, it erases that, uh, that Ilhan Omar exists, you know, that, that, that somebody can sort of make such a, uh, that, that Rashida Tlaib exists. 
and that these people are so ubiquitous in every single way, except when people start talking about this one issue and then they disappear. Uh, right. So they're like, they're like, and you may make a similar argument Tommy, in the piece where it's just like these people, like when you're making, these people are either, they're either the most important politicians or they're completely unimportant. Right. And you yeah. have to choose one, you know, you can't yeah. just be like, well, in this instance, they're not important. Right. Like we can't look at the fact that like that, that AOC became like the most famous person in Congress in a matter of like two years. Right. And, and, <laughs> and just say, oh, well, that's just, you know, for whatever X reason, it's not because she's saying things that people actually, you know, have an emotional connection with. Which obviously that's a huge part of it, and then just be like, oh, well, sh you know, that woke stuff doesn't work. Be like, well, it's worked to great her, right. you know, like it's worked to elect Jamal Bowman, you know, it's worked to elect Cory Bush, and you know, it, 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 that stuff just goes away. But okay, so you end with Carol Fife, and it's uh, you're right. Fife's candidacy was as exciting to me as anything else on the November ballot. Nationally, there was Biden, as pure a product of the stalemate as any politician alive. But here in Oakland's District Three. Uh, in districts three, more a more emancipatory vision of politics was on the ticket. The rally in that park was at odds with the uh, delirium of the moment, but in its way, it was no less happy uh, than all the dancing and honking nearby along Grand Avenue. Five thanked her staff, and she spoke of the challenges ahead of the streaks of red within the blue of California, of the reactionary turn that could be discerned in the ballot propositions of neoliberalism and liberalism in housing and policing and climate. Um, okay, so yeah, you like what, what about Carol Fife was like so inspiring to you, or like what, what do you think she represents? Well, so I, I think there are, you know, and, and Tammy was, was alluding to this, but I think, um, I think Carol Fife is like she has done the, the Moms for Housing stuff, and I think it's important that this really did spread beyond Oakland that this has, variations of this happened in Minneapolis mm -hmm. uh, in the wake of the initial Floyd protest. They took over a hotel and essentially turned it into a commune, uh, Philadelphia, uh, Los Angeles, elsewhere. I mean, I, I think it like this was a thing that that opened people's minds to this idea. Um, and like she did, she was doing real deal commie shit. And it is wild to me <laughs> that she's not like like a national hero of the left. Um, I mean, I think we can. I think we we all know why she isn't, um, but like she, well, she why? did Cause some... she's because she's not a seventy five yeah, year old white career politician from New England. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the same way that like Ruth Wilson Gilmore never gets talked about as like uh, as like a Marxist, you know, like she's she's doing. I think I think the perception, and maybe this is incredibly ungenerous, but the perception is she's doing like identity stuff, like black woman mm -hmm. stuff, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, but like she's she is a leftist hero um and is not seen that way um and so that i think one of the things that um i find really inspiring about her and and is that she and like listening to her talk and enumerate these issues without really you know the, the careful calibration you get and obviously this is oakland the political mm -hmm. context is very different but uh it feels totally outside of this kind of stale, this 50 year long stalemate I, I've been describing, like um, mm -hmm. in, in the same way that like, you know, her just moving people into a house just like was outside of what we have sort of come to accept as as like, you know, the the norms of the status quo or whatever, uh, like her her politics just seem totally beside, um, you know, these kind of like narrow hydraulic politics of of like 
you know, that Joe Biden represents and that like talking too much about this issue means that you lose people over here. And like she was knitting together, you know, these like different kinds of oppression um, in a way that I think like opens open, like we were saying earlier, opens doors to people and allows for people to like identify, um, you know, their sense of themselves, you know, their sense of their own oppression in this like larger larger story um and if it is like liberating to hear somebody talk about that um yeah. like out in the open um and you know i think there's like on the left right now like all the energy is going to i think politics that exist outside of outside of the stalemate right like abolition abolition is going to be like the conceptual framework it, it will be to the 2020s what like communism was to the 1930s like the the totalizing framework for like how to fix the nightmare of the world. Um, Andy, do you think that's like, so optimistic? I yeah, love it. yeah, I know. <laughs> Tam, Tammy, Tammy in our chat called me a carceralist today. <laughs> it's like when it's like when you used to. Did Tommy used to call me a concert? Tommy used to call me a Republican. Is it, for the if people don't know, Tommy is Korean, and Tommy was like, uh, Tommy used to just be like, "You're gonna be like those old Korean adjectives who like." sit outside their stores with you know and like you know don't pay don't pay taxes and just complain all the time it's like maybe, just you know, yell at maybe there's still time for that to happen tommy <laughs> jay, jay and i are our first like real fight and we've had many fights, yeah, many over fights. i think our first fight was at a korean restaurant in k-town uh in new york and he threw, he threw a he threw a chopstick at me yeah <laughs> And people, what? Out of, out of real anger, I actually don't remember what I was mad about. But. It was, uh, it was um, about uh, uh, Michelle Ree and teachers unions. Oh yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I think you misheard me and thought I was talking about um, uh, who's the golfer, Michelle Wee. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but the, the people around us, there weren't Koreans around us, but they thought like you had taken out some sort of like blood oath, <laughs> like throwing a chopstick <laughs> like, represented the ultimate in like Korean humiliation. Oh my God. Yeah, that's uh, the, um, good Lord. Yeah. All right. What were we talking about right before that? I hey, uh, huh? Communism and. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Do you, I mean, do you, did, Andy, do you think that do you think that that abolition will be the the framework of the 2020s? It, Tammy called me a carcelist uh, because I said that all the people at Stanford who jumped the vaccine line, you know, because like today is a day when like uh, at Stanford it was revealed that like a lot of the hospital administrators and rich doctors who don't even who are doing all Zoom calls were getting the vaccine over like people who are actually taking care of COVID and they did a big demonstration. I said all these people should go to jail and Tammy's like, you're a carceralist. <laughs> I mean, literally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I was like, it's fine. Jail should just be people who skip the, the vaccine line. Okay, Andy, what, what do you think? You as, you as like the... You are like the, the the Marxist on the show. Like, do you do you think that, that <laughs> abolition being the framework is right? Well, okay, I'm not sure about that. Before I get on to that, though, I was thinking, listening to you all talk and Tommy talk about his article more, that I think maybe, and maybe you were saying this very clearly, I just missed it, but it feels like what you're saying is what is called an economic argument is actually itself an identity argument, right? Like the, yeah. the right? It's like a white identity argument yeah. in disguise. And then what is yeah. called identity is actually an economic argument. And I think if posed that way, I think the article 
So I don't know. Maybe I just missed it, but that that, that kind of makes it a little bit clearer. Um, <laughs> Instead of it satisfies Andy's ideology. No, I, was like, I, was tr I was just trying to like parse through this economic versus cultural thing, because you're kind of saying like it kind of inverts, you know, all all the all the ways that people are talking about it. Um, I think. I mean, I think that I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen with the abolitionists. But what makes it interesting is, or what I think is it happening is that abolitionism has become a flashpoint because the American economy is, as you kind of said in your article, is so stagnant that capital kind of runs to places where it can just, like it's not it's not running to industry, right? It's not running. It's running to like overseas markets, and then domestically it runs to like places where it can just kind of sit and, and just kind of accumulate you know, like, st like rent basically, which is like building large prisons and then, um, you know, like basically paying off politicians to help them funnel prisoners into them. So what, what it really, if it, if it is like an effective slogan or as a flashpoint, I think it would be like prisons as a, as a symbol of the sort of, um, uh, uncre like lack of creativity among the capitalist class, basically in America, and maybe America should actually. I, mean, I don't know if they should. I know friends who are who are really into this idea of America like reinventing Fordism, and like building a new like national high speed rail, and that's the way we should get out of where we're stuck at. But you know, I'm, I'm not going. I'm not going to go that far. But I think, um, like the stalemate you're talking about in your article, uh, I think is is, is sort of um, what abolitionism could potentially point towards right that yeah. like america's just run out of any new direction so they're just kind of you know mm. looking for like bullshit reasons bullshit ways to yeah. make money off oh, that's interesting. yeah no i think yeah yeah i mean I, but I why tell me why do you think abolition why why are you so optimistic bullish on, on abolition well, I, I i mean i don't know if i'm i'm necessarily bullish i mean communism in the 30s didn't really right. succeed um uh or why do you think it will take over the the minds but of I, the I, left in like the let's say because there is a void now right like where look yeah. some people are just going to become republicans I think we can agree some of the people who are like you know um, some people are going to be cultural reactionaries but I think the vast majority of people who are involved in in these past two in this movement over the last like let's say like ten years or something eight years like they they want something right they don't want to become cultural reactionaries like they don't want to become podcasters they don't want to become people who <laughs> just professionally <laughs> professional contrarians right they they like the, those people are very limited um the vast majority of people want to get behind something that is not democrat politics and so do you think that that's abolition i mean i think i i guess the the point i was making is that this is where the energy is going necessarily okay. because of this like stagnation and it's not just abolition it's also like MMT is about to have, uh, you know, a very big moment um, for, uh, I think, very similar reasons. And, you know, there I'm sure Andy will have um, thoughts on, <laughs> on MMT, but like MMT is offering almost like, I mean, if you get deep into MMT, it becomes a sort of metaphysics. And yeah. I think it does for people now what what like New Age did in the seventies. That's interesting. Not to are like you, people. Uh, we should say it's modern monetary theory, yeah. and it's Seth Kelton is one of its, I guess, most famous uh, proponents. But it's having a moment. With, like she advised Bernie. I think AOC is into it, so it's gonna. I, I'm curious. I, I haven't like studied it very closely, but I'm curious if it's actually gonna have a moment, like you say. Yeah, I mean, I and I think it's these like, it's form, like Bitcoin. But the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, but I mean, in terms of ha like starting to have a culture around it, you know, 
Whereas yeah. like Bitcoin yeah. has this whole ideology yeah. and culture around the it. metaphysical. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. like MMT is starting that moment right now. Um, and there's there's like you know and there is a connection between MMT and I mean maybe not abolition specifically though there are a lot of like MMT you know like the the historian David Stein is sort of on the MMT end of things and he's written a lot about uh, the job the job guarantee um, and in a lot of ways. Uh, when you look at the, the history of, of sort of emancipatory movements and especially, you know, black liberation movement in America, they, they were making like proto MMT arguments. Coretta Scott King was a, like a proto MMT or Coretta Scott King fought for a job guarantee uh, and sort of picked up um, the torch after her husband was killed. Um, and so there, there are these like, kind of yeah. interesting um you know this interesting these interesting links between these ideas Dave, david stein at ucla yeah uh, he's a, yeah, he's a big listener of the show yeah. yeah hey david, hey, david. <laughs> um he was and tommy quoted him in the article um yeah. Yeah. the 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 last question i have because we're running very long is um you know like do you i this is for all of you because uh do you think that this is going to continue? I mean, Tommy, you do a great job in this piece of delineating this long history of this one argument, right? But like basically anti-wokeness, um, all this cultural talk, all this stuff about, you know, Black Lives Mattering and trans people. It's turning off, you know, uh, some dude who's like a, in a David Akers fan who's, you know, just like drinking beer in, uh, in Delco. Is that right? Are all those references right, Andy? Delco? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I saw that in a Barstool Sports video I recently watched. So. Oh. <laughs> I didn't tell you, that's all I know. I was like, Delco? What is Delco? And, you know, oh Dave God. Portnoy was in Delco eating pizza. Um, <laughs> that, that, that they are going to turn that guy off, right? Like, do you, I mean, what, what, do you think this is just like a constant in American politics or do you think that there is like some end of it? Because I personally am exhausted by it, but, you know, I'm not like the, the electorate or the people who make these conversations. I mean, I, I think this is this like grew out of a, a specific set of circumstances and like all of our all of like left politics right now should be about upending those circumstances. And they they sort of seem to be. Um, I mean, and I guess like my argument is with the parts of the left that just keep replicating uh, that the, log yeah. the logic of scarcity um, and like not moving to these things that want to like just like upend um you know sort of the foundations of that scarcity uh. yeah like uh it's weird because they're they've sort of found this amazing way of talking about these things where and i've noticed it mostly from glenn greenwald right where it's like there is this new language where it's like i am of the working class which glenn is you know he grew up in a in in very poor single mother household all these other people are elites right and every single thing that these elites say is stupid and, you know, only informed by their eliteness. But the thing that they point to, look, I don't think any of that is wrong. You know, I, I also find that the <laughs> that those people are generally wrong about things. But, you know, the fixation is always on this one thing. It's always on white fragility. Right. It's always on it's always on diversity seminars and workshops. It's always on like, you know, today the, the blow up was what about like whether or not the CDC was saying that too many old white, too many white people are old or something like that. Right. Was that it? 
which I think that's Something. what it was today. Yeah. Um, that it just seems to replicate itself over and over and over and over again. My sense is that like, you can't do that forever, but maybe you can, I don't know. Andy, what do you think? Do you think that this is like the, do you think like, what do you think the future is for the thing that Tommy outlined in his article? Uh, I don't know. I kind of think, I mean, we, we talked about this on election night. I just kind of think we got to wait for the squad to take over the party. <laughs> so, so, so what Tommy seems to be saying is like, this is like the Democrats centrist last defense. I mean, we could, we could potentially think of it maybe in history maybe 10 years down the line, we'll look back and say, this was their last gasp, right? Holding on, trying to hold on to their hegemony over the party. Or it could be like this sort of, you know, first time as tragedy, second time as farce. They actually do hold on to the party mm. as it continues to sink further into irrelevance. Yeah, um, yeah. No, that's, 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 that doesn't leave us very many options. <laughs> no, but that, that's a good framing of it, I think, right? It's just like, yeah. it, will this work? Because it seems that, look, it, whether or not it's working, it's difficult to know. But I'll tell you one thing, one place where, like one thing that we have plenty of evidence of, which is that the you know, the loudspeakers for the Democratic Party seem to be fully convinced that this is true, right? Which is, you know, why, Tommy, I don't know why you were watching MSNBC for an entire yeah. week, but like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, why were you watching MSNBC for an entire week? That sounds horrible. I tried watching it. I've tr I think I've watched like eight minutes of MSNBC in my life, and it was when Rachel Maddow got the Trump tax returns, and I made it through eight minutes of that. That's like the only <laughs> MSNBC I've ever watched. Is CNN better? Is What do you Watch I don't watch cable news. I don't watch. Yeah. I think CNN is slightly better. You think? Yeah. I, I think it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because I, they're so amoral and evil that they actually bring in both sides, and it, and it. I don't know. Like they did a better job when Bernie was winning because they're like, oh, maybe we should hire some Bernie people. Whereas MSNBC was like, we're never going to hire any Bernie people. Interesting. That's true. So, well, Tammy, what do you think? Tammy, what's the what's the future? Of, what's the future of this thing? Like, uh, um. does it? Is it like sort of the? Is it the? Is it the, you know, like how the Tar Heels are like, you know, it's, I don't know. It's like the, they got their name because like, I think they're like, oh, those boys are fighting. Like they have tar on their heels because they're like holding the line, you know? Uh. Oh. <laughs> but that's why they're called the Tar Heels. But um, is it, are, is this like the Tar Heel moment, you know, of, uh, of, of, of the Democratic Party doesn't work? Because, like, I don't know. that I'm with Andy where, with, where I just think, like, look, people don't care about this that much, you know? But, man, it is fucking everywhere. Yeah. I think we have... I mean, I, I don't obviously agree with, like, the demographics is destiny bullshit that we've been fed. But I think there is something to the fact that there is this growing cadre of people like Carol, of people like the squad. I think that can't be denied. I mean, I, in a way, this is the most hopeful moment we've had in terms of seeing people who actually represent our values in mainstream politics. Yeah. And a lot of them are still concentrated mostly at the local level, but I think it's, that actually is promising. And I mean, the demographic destiny piece is useful insofar as like we are living in a gerontocracy. So those people have to go at some point. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we'll have some people lined up to support them. So hopefully we'll like deep bench enough. Is that a good sports reference? <laughs> Whatever, deep, I'm trying, okay. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know, that's what they call it in politics, oh, like yeah, when yeah, you're yeah, gr yeah. grooming your bench, right? So I was uh, like, maybe that's from sports. Okay. I don't fucking yeah. know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, so I'm gonna try to stay hopeful. I like, I appreciate that Tommy was like, abolition can be our totalizing vision. Like. I don't think I'm there yet, but I would love to feel that that is a thing that is possible and 
I think, you know, obviously the way the socialist discourse has gone has been promising even in the last five years. So we can hang on to that. When you say abolitionism, do you like what happened to Medicare for all? Is that just over? Are you, are yeah, you, Tommy, anybody. No, like, no, Medicare I mean, for all is still number one. I and and I contained in that, right? It's, yeah, and I guess like when I say abolition, I mean definitely prisons, and, and I think there are, re- there are reasons it has centered on prisons, like as you laid out. Um, but I also think it's 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 a logic too that I think yeah. Green New Deal is an abolitionist document, you know. Uh, and I think I think Medicare for all in its own way. Uh, I would actually be curious to hear people who sort of identify as abolitionists beyond beyond just prison abolition, I would be curious how they characterize Medicare for all. But I think um, I think that idea is consonant with sort of an abolitionist sure. vision. Yeah. The, the thing I'm most interested in, in terms of this, in terms of the future of this is like, what happens when it stops, when, you know, we're all vaccinated and out in the world again, and, you know, the pandemic is not the pandemic that we have right now. Because I think that what, one thing that we can say is that these arguments feel so abstract and absurd to me, right, in the context of the pandemic. And I think that the way in which politics will be discussed is going to have to be a lot less flimsy in some ways. But maybe that's just not true. Maybe we'll just go right back to talking about politics in a flimsy sort of way. But, you know, people with ruined lives, people with family members dead. I don't know. It just seems very difficult to believe that, like, you can mount a strong argument that, like, somebody mentioning trans lives is the reason why people are making the argument. But then again, it's like, that's still the argument these people are going with, you know, every like, uh, and maybe that's just because they don't have any other arguments. Like that's probably it. But I mean, something I, has I to I don't think that's that, actually right? a, like flimsy. I mean, I think it's just a reactionary argument. I think like, I think that like trans issues go directly to, you know, the gender, like the gender binary, right? And like, there's a reason the right has made so much hay out of it. Like that's, it is, it is a like a real issue, um, and it go, like goes to the heart of of reactionary, you know, reactionary politics. Um, and so, I, yeah, I don't think it's brought up in this in kind of a a flimsy way. I mean, it might be brought up by unserious people, uh, but they are speaking to I think like a real anxiety like on the right that has like created this era of of, of crisis and panic around like gender. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I just meant more like, you know, this argument that like the that adopting the politics of wokeness is what's going to turn people off. That still seems very flimsy to me yeah. because I don't know what I mean, they're talking about ever, you know, which is also part of the the, flimsy the, the one thing. The one thing to mention also is that, you know, Tommy talked about the stalemate or how this how the the pie keeps shrinking and how it's just we're just kind of fighting for crumbs from the shrinking pie. But you. I think you're maybe you're talking about this with your MMT comment. The left or the Democrats do have to figure out a way to increase the pie at some point, and that is economic or some sort yeah. of political economy. And uh, I, I do think that is what the Democrats or the constantly, constantly, currently constituted Democrats keep avoiding, right? Is figuring out a way to like stop yeah. inequality and reinvest into something that gets bigger for everyone. Right. And yeah. um, that's where I am sympathetic to this idea. Like I think. I don't know, I'm going to give Andrew Yang a bit of a pass. I kind of think he's not as bad as Claire McCaskill. I kind of like, and he is like an MMT, or he's kind of an MMT, or he's a UBIR, right? 
um, yeah. that's sort of just give money to everyone um, approach. I, I I think that's probably where his heart is, right? He's like a te- he's like a technocratic version of of a leftist, basically. Sort of. I yeah. think it, yeah. he, he could be MMT pilled. I think. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he would. Anything that would like involve four charts and him being able to talk about it, he's gonna be. He's gonna be all in on. And uh, yeah, I don't. I think that's yeah. Coming out of the pandemic, like you know, the line between our conversation with Sarah last week and Tommy and MMT and you know, I think and Bernie is like that we and Ruthie Ruthie Wilson Gilmore honestly is like to talk about our position as one of abundance, you yeah. know, and as one of the good life. And I think coming out of the pandemic, we really need to figure that shit out because we need. I mean, to me, the abolitionist discourse is useful in creating that abundance because it's a way of talking about how we're going to move resources to actually have a good life and to not just be caught in this austerity mindset, you know, and that, that is, I don't think anyone like our age or younger has ever known that. Right. So, um, yeah, I think building that out known like in imagination and, you know, in a political program is so important. Known, known what has known what? Abundance, that feeling of like abundance of like, you don't think the Obama years were like a feeling of abundance for, no i think no because i mean the crash i mean i think like the clinton years are like that mythical like neoliberal abundant era and then like since then but like people younger than us like straight millennials are like (laughs) you know they haven't it's always just been the tightness yeah yeah that is true yeah like people who left college after 2008 which uh you know at that point i was six years out of college so you know, I think it's, you know Tammy, you and I are a little older than Andy, so maybe that's part of the generational gap. Um, all right, well, um, is there anything else we want to talk about? This was fun. I had a, I don't know, and I think it was illuminating. I don't know, the, the, like, just personally, I will say that like one of the things that I think that people like, and this is just addressed to the four of us and our listenership, a lot of our listeners, but also, I, I, I do think that there is this. I do think that people feel this great anxiety to conform to this anti-wokeness, especially when it is coming from the left of you, you know? Um, And that I think that a lot of minorities are afraid to talk about certain things in honest ways. And they feel like, well, can I really say that I'm part of this political movement or these are my politics? If the second when I say something, hey, you know, I'm Latino or hey, I'm Asian or hey, I'm from China or I'm from X country, then you sort of, I feel like people are starting to anticipate being reprimanded for that, you know? And I think that that definitely, and this is a longstanding tradition, but I think that definitely happens with black leftists as well. And I just think that like, you know, this is a very, maybe it's just insular within like the world of people who do podcasts or something like that. It seems like, you know, somehow dis- dis- disentangling that is like a very important step, right? In terms of figuring out how to, do that and i think that like sort of overemphasizing you know the stuff that we find annoying and not just saying it's annoying right like i think that you know like diversity workshop bureaucratic odi type of stuff is just annoying you know and i think that the way to talk about it is just say that it's annoying you know yeah. I, I had to write a diversity statement for a job i applied for and it was so it was annoying because i was like every single person who's reading this is white you know and my diversity statement should just be like I'm not white. They're like, well, what would you do, you know, at this place to increase diversity uh, or to like promote diversity? It's like, well, you know, I'll just walk in, you know, some fucking chink off the street. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) 
I'll, I'll check out the fucking appropriate box for my race. Like it's annoying, you know. Like so, but I don't know. I don't. It didn't turn me into a Trump voter, you know. Um, it, it was just a mild red pilling, right? I always think of that. Like there should be a term for like a mild, like you know, it's it's almost like dyspepsia or something like that, right? Like where it's like this, or, or like heart, it's like heartburn. Where you're just like, yeah, you start like reading, like uh, you start reading like reactionary Twitter. You just go to somebody's profile that you know will be evincing these ideas, and you, like you know, I don't know somebody like uh, like uh, Coleman Hughes or something like that, and you have like four minutes where you're just like, like man, god damn these, fu-. and then and then it passes, you know, and you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Coleman Hughes is not the right example, but you know what I'm talking about, right? There are other examples, but I can't say these people's names because. Uh, we have mutual uh, non-aggression packs. Um, so, okay. I think that's enough. Tommy, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug outside of this, uh, outside of this uh, article that you wrote? Uh, uh, subscribe to Mother Jones Magazine. Go to motherjones.com. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you Mother. And, um, Thanks for coming. Uh, and as always, uh, you can contact us if you want to get in touch with us. I would have plugged Tommy's Twitter, but he's a famous non-tweeter. The only time he tweets <laughs> is when there's a show about chess on television, and then he screen caps the the boards and then explains, like in the just most withering and unpleasant ways possible, why the board is wrong. <laughs> I, those tweets have been deleted. Are you uh, deleted those? Did you do that with Queen's Gambit? Did you do that with Queen's Gambit? Well, Queen's Gambit gets it right. Oh, it so. does get it right. So, <laughs> really? so when that girl is on tranquilizers looking up on the ceiling and the pieces are moving, that's right? I mean, all right. I, I played chess yeah. as a youth uh, and I played in a lot of tournaments and there are a lot of resonances uh, there. I was, I was wow. a very good player as a kid. Uh, and while I think that was a little bit overblown, uh, it's a, you know, it's a TV show. The idea of like, turning everything you see into a board on which you start like playing through games and openings that is like very true no 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 i didn't mean that but are the pieces in the right place because i remember when you were like mad it was like because that rook would never be there just like (laughs) the openings were correct uh the pieces were in the right place the board was aligned properly wow Uh, it was really impressive yeah good to know okay so that anyway that that's tommy's twitter presence and then apparently (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not even that because he's deleted all those, so I won't give you his Twitter account. But um, you can reach us if you have emails for Tommy. You can we'll forward them on to him. Uh, our email address is <laughs> time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com and our Twitter is ttsg pod um, with the at in front of it. Uh, you can DM us or you can email us. Get in touch with us however you want. And thank you. We got a ton of, you know, every week we got a ton of your emails and DMs and responses. And we are working through them. And I, th- I think we'll, next week we'll, we'll go through a lot of them. How about that? Sure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.